Whether you would let a dozen people die to save a thousand frozen embryos. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg, and I realize that this is probably a political-sounding question. Maybe the most politically-oriented question in the history of the Walk the Earth podcast. But then again, Walk the Earth is a spinoff of inappropriate conversations, and I assure you, I've dealt with more or less the political side of this kind of question in greater detail previously on inappropriate conversations. Right up front, I'll drop a couple of references. Then I want to get to a Bible verse, because I don't want to answer this question from a political perspective. I want to view it more as a moral difficulty and lead us through the path of considering a thought experiment. Not my own thought experiment, by the way, and I'll give credit when credit's due at the appropriate time. But first, anyone who's come to walk the earth noticing this question and looking for a more of a legal or political exploration of it, well, you're going to find that somewhere else. It's the same feed at www.inappropriateconversations.org, but that perspective is more the Inappropriate Conversations podcast approach. This is Walk the Earth, and Walk the Earth asks questions about the way we do church as Christians. It's going to be more of a Christian, spiritual, uh, even uh, moral conundrum approach. So let me point you to a couple of previous inappropriate conversations for those who would prefer to hear uh, yeah, maybe more of a of an argumentative answer. Because I'm really just trying to ask a big question in this particular Walk the Earth. But if you go back to the election year of 2012, November 21st, 2012, as a matter of fact, Inappropriate Conversations number 105 at that point was called press coverage, and it was looking at uh, the media in particular. And But the episode turned out to be about twice as long as what at the time was a normal Inappropriate Conversations podcast. I decided to call a bluff from people who had claimed that there was some sort of uh, un- unbalanced scale, uneven approach to the way the media in particular questions the the moral consistency, for want of a better word, of pro-life political candidates. After the different drummer in that particular episode, I kind of went in this direction. Many partisan conservatives believe that the media never asked hard questions of pro-choice candidates during the debates and on the campaign trail. This was in 2012, but I'm sure it applies before and since. It isn't because those questions are difficult to answer. And the second half of this particular podcast back in 2012, I took an off-the-cuff set of questions and answered them. But really, that was sort of an incomplete impromptu approach because answers to questions related to abortion had been covered by me pretty early on, a year and a half earlier, in fact, in June of 2011. Probably the inappropriate conversations shows that were the released the closest together for two different podcasts, number 59 and number 60, within two days or three days of each other back in June of 2011. It was simply called 10 Areas of Agreement About Abortion, Part 1 and Part 2. 
and I might be treading some familiar ground here, but only just barely. Because what I intend to do, instead of uh, introducing the same arguments that have been made on inappropriate conversations, and doing it from a walk-the-earth perspective, my intent instead is to go to places that I never really went, or never fully went, back then. I'd mentioned an Inappropriate Conversations podcast almost a year ago, thinking about the uh, the loss of my mother, who died last year. And one of the gifts, one of the things that I was uh, inheriting, I guess, for want of a better word, that I really was thrilled to see, because I actually had it on my list of things to go find for quite some time, was a particular translation of the Bible, a particularly good word-for-word translation of the Bible. I've always heard it referred to as the New American Standard Bible, NASB 1971. But the version I've got from my mom that was given to my father from somebody that he knew in a Bible study class back in January of 1981. Um, So it's been in the family for quite some time, but it's called just the New American Bible, translated from the original languages with critical use of all ancient sources by members of the Catholic Biblical Association of America and uh, sponsored by the Bishop's Committee of the Co-Fraternity of Christian Doctrine and published by the Catholic Press originally in 1970. But as I mentioned, it's called here NAB 1971. And this still stands, in my opinion, as one of the better word-for-word translations of the Bible. Uh, To compare this to other biblical translations like the New International Version or the Good News Bible, for that matter, Those are more idea-for-idea translations, trying to represent verse-to-verse or section-of-verses-to-section-of-verses as accurately as possible what the original language, whether that be Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, was trying to convey. But this effort in the New American Bible was to try to get that even closer in and make sure that even the ideas that were being translated into another language were you know, done with a great deal of fidelity to the actual words being used. So a word-for-word translation. And even as late as 1993-1994, this stood as the NAB or NASB translation. In 1995, though, a new version, an updated version, was released. This was not a version updated because additional ancient sources had been found or new language interpretation had been done through some sort of study. It was simply an effort to update the text to more accurately reflect what the Catholic Association of Bishops believed was true at the time. In other words, if you look at a 1995 or later version of this same translation of the Bible, you're going to find passages that have been changed. And again, changed not because we've discovered another set of, well, Dead Sea Scrolls, or anything of that nature, simply changed because the politics in the United States of America shifted as well. Case in point, Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. When men have a fight and hurt a pregnant woman so that she suffers a miscarriage, but no further injury, the guilty one shall be fined as much as the woman's husband demands of him, and he shall pay in the presence of the judges. But if injury ensues... You shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is an entire section of Exodus 21 dealing with how to handle the law from a Torah perspective when it comes to personal injury. 
I personally do not know any Jewish people who feel that this particular reading of those two verses is in any way a mistranslation. And in fact, it's very hard to find a translation of the Bible that dates before, say, the Reagan administration that had any different translation of this particular passage. The other thing that's interesting is that it's covering this entire realm of what to do when someone does great bodily harm or takes a life. Let me quickly put it in context by reading maybe verses 18 through 27. It will, of course, repeat these two verses again, but I feel the repetition is worth it because these are a couple of the verses of the Bible, at least this particular translation of the Bible, which have been doctored. And that doctoring has influenced subsequent translations as well, unfortunately. Back to Exodus 21 for just a moment. When men quarrel and one strikes another with a stone or a fist, not mortally, but enough to put him in bed, the one who struck the blow shall be acquitted, provided the other can get up and walk around with the help of his staff. Still, he must compensate him for the enforced idleness and provide for his complete cure. When a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod so hard that the slave dies under his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, the slave survives for a day or two, he is not to be punished, since the slave is his own property. When men have a fight and hurt a pregnant woman so that she suffers a miscarriage, but no further injury, the guilty one shall be fined as much as the woman's husband demands of him, and he shall pay in the presence of the judges. But if injury ensues... You shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes his male or female slave in the eye and destroys the use of the eye, he shall let the slave go free in compensation for the eye. If he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let the slave go free in compensation for the tooth. This is the context of an original word-for-word translation of Exodus chapter 21, and in particular, verses 22 and 23, from New American Standard Bible, 1971. I bring it up because it's factually true that from the perspective of the Torah, the miscarriage, which is the death of a child being born Um, in this case, born through uh, the collateral damage of a pregnant woman being caught in the midst of two people fighting, that that death does not carry the life for life. It doesn't even really carry the same sort of consequences, the death of the child, that maybe even injuring a slave would. That if if you willfully and violently injured your slave, you might have to set that slave free back in ancient times. But if you strike a pregnant a pregnant woman and do her no lasting damage other than the miscarriage, well, you're going to have to agree on what fine to pay the husband for the loss of that child. And that's kind of it. It certainly undermines any notion that biblically life begins at conception. Unless, of course, you come along 24 years later and just decide you're going to rewrite all those verses, which leads me to the question that we want to deal with today. How do we then if it isn't as cut and dried as we've been told to be by politically active Christians, how do we, from a spiritual perspective, understand where we stand on this question of conception, whether life begins there, or does life begin at birth, or some point of viability somewhere in between? At what point have you crossed that line? Because to me, that probably can only be well understood or ascertained 
by doing a thought experiment. Now, as I get into this, I'm going to introduce the concepts from another writer and try to address the question a little bit from my own perspective that way. But the first thing you're going to hear from anybody who would rather not deal with this question or finds themselves on the opposite side of what they tell themselves they think the right answer is, is a whole lot of reasons why hypotheticals are somehow wrong. And I would simply point those folks to the New Testament and ask them to cast themselves in in the story told in Luke's gospel. When Jesus is talking about the parable of the good Samaritan, are you going to be the one in the crowd when you suddenly realize that Jesus is casting the um, generally despised Samaritan people in a, a protagonist or even hero role in that story? Are you going to be the one in the crowd saying, well, hey, that's just a hypothetical and hypotheticals are a waste of time and we shouldn't be asked to consider these things and, and what does that crazy rabbi think he's doing? No, I think that when a thought experiment is conducted, even if it isn't particularly fruitful, or even if you really can't get your head around it, I think the answer there reveals a lot about what we think and what we believe. An unwillingness to consider an answer reveals a lot about what we think and what we believe. And frankly, I would be very suspicious of anybody who claims to be thoughtful and cannot deal with even the slightest, most mildly challenging abstract thought. Because that's what we're talking about. An abstract question. The question, again, for this particular walk the earth, is whether you would let a dozen people die to save a thousand frozen embryos. This question, and the way I want to consider it, was inspired, uh, in many ways, by something I saw on Twitter. It's not by a person I follow on Twitter, but nevertheless, I felt strongly enough about it that I kind of saved the link for use in this particular episode of Walk the Earth. Patrick S. Tomlinson, again, somebody I don't know personally, somebody I don't follow on social media, but I did, for whatever reason, stumble across this particular question. Whenever abortion comes up, I have a question I've been asking for 10 years now of the life begins at conception crowd. In 10 years, no one has ever answered it honestly. It's a simple scenario with two outcomes. No one ever wants to pick one because the correct answer destroys their argument. And there is a correct answer, which is why the pro-life crowd hates this question. Here it is, says Tomlinson. You're in a fertility clinic. Why is it important? The fire alarm goes off. You run for the exit. And as you run down this hallway, you hear a child screaming from behind a door. You throw open the door and find a five-year-old child crying for help. They're in one corner of the room, and in the other corner you spot a frozen container labeled 1,000 Viable Human Embryos. The smoke is rising. You start to choke. You know you can grab one or the other, but not both, before you succumb to smoke inhalation and die saving no one. Do you A. Save the child, or B. Save the 1,000 frozen embryos? There is no C. C means you all die. In a decade of arguing with anti-abortion people about the definition of human life, I have never gotten a single straight A or B answer to this question, and I never will. They will never answer honestly, because we all instinctively understand that the right answer is A. A human child is worth more than a thousand embryos, or ten thousand, or a million, because they are not the same, not morally, not ethically, not biologically. 
This question absolutely eviscerates their arguments, and their refusal to answer confirms that they know it to be true. No one, anywhere, actually believes that an embryo is equivalent to a child. That person does not exist. They are lying to you. They are lying to you to try to evoke an emotional response, a paternal response, using false equivalency. No one believes life begins at exception. No one believes embryos or babies or children. Those who claim to are trying to manipulate you so they can control women. Don't let them. Use this question to call them out. Reveal them for what they are. Demand they answer your question, and when they don't, slap that big old scarlet P of the patriarchy on them. The end. These are the words of Patrick S. Tomlinson. And I'm going to keep the majority of his scenario for the way I want to consider it, because I agree with him. The details, why you're in a fertility clinic, for example, yeah, they're not really all that important. So what if really what it was, was there had been some sort of collapse in the building, that this fire had been created by some sort of, of earthquake or some other, you know, unsound engineering problem where you're convinced that not only could you succumb to smoke inhalation and either uh, choke to death or burn to death, but maybe the whole building is going to come down on you. And in the same way, now maybe it's more than a thousand frozen embryos. Maybe that, that vat is at least a thousand or 10,000 or half a million or some other number like that, because if frozen embryos don't inherently, inherently take up that much space necessarily, you could see how a, a strong, able-bodied person could carry something containing thousands of fully functioning human lives because of, you get the idea. But what if what it was, was you had enough time to lift this vat and carry it out before the smoke got you, or you had enough time to remove uh, wreckage and debris from a door that was trapping a dozen people inside a room. Whatever the scenario, it comes, if it comes down to one child versus a thousand embryos, maybe that's a hard decision for some. I've read responses online to this particular question that were posed back to Tomlinson. But what if it was a dozen? What if it was a hundred? If the pro-life point of view, their political point of view, to be fair, is true, then... A thousand frozen embryos is always going to be a thousand times more valuable than that um, frightened and potentially unconscious 79-year-old kid, right? Or um, 10 times or 100 times more valuable than a, a dozen people trapped behind debris in some, sort of a, in some sort of a room. And I think, as I've always considered questions like this and tried to come away with an answer, you... You know, anybody who says this is a hard question needs to wrestle with the fact that this is actually the easy version. Because it gets a lot more difficult if you start saying, well, hey, if you actually would be, because your politics are so central to your life and are more important to you than your values or even your moral compass in some cases, that you might be willing to say, well, no, no, I, I would sacrifice that one child because I'm just, quote unquote, that pro-life. Well, what if it was your child? And then what does it say about you? If you'd let a thousand people die a horrific, you know, fiery death with a building collapsing on them to save one child. But the, the difference is you wouldn't save anybody else's. You might just save your own. This scenario gets more and more difficult the more detail you pour behind it. So I tried to make it a little bit more simple and keeping to a situation where you're in this building, you don't know anybody but you've identified this situation. You have a chance to be a hero. And are you going to be a hero to a thousand frozen embryos or are you going to be a hero to a person or a dozen people who are trapped in a building and, and inevitably going to die? And 
if you try to say both, then you all go. I think that's a fair part of the thought experiment because it really isn't that much of a, it's more of a thought experiment with regards to cowardice. If you're not in any jeopardy yourself, if the building has not been compromised, there's just a fire and you've got some sort of gas mask and other sort of fire protection gear. You're a fireman or something along those lines. But no, this is boiled down to being an ordinary average person and asking yourself as an ordinary average person whether the cries of a young child or a, a tween, a teenager even, is that going to be more of a priority for you if you've only got the ability to save one? If you only have one more trip out of this building before it's too late? Or are you going to let that person die? Maybe even kick that person out of your way as they try to cling to you and, and hopefully climb on top and ride you to safety somehow. Because it's very important that you forcefully remove this person and leave them to their fate in order to save that container of frozen embryos. I've actually asked the question a different way before. Because I would make the argument that if you were hardcore pro-life and were actually inclined to you know, maybe even do physical violence to a child or a teenager or even an adult who was trying to get you to rescue them at the expense of these embryos, that you might be, in your own mind, heroic on two different levels. Because on one level, there's just a numbers game here, right? If all of these lives are equal, and if we really believe they're equal, and if we honestly engage in the thought experiment and come back with the answer that they are equal, well, first, I'm going to be a little bit concerned about going on any sort of uh, potentially dangerous expedition with you as my right-hand man. You know, no offense, but I think I I would be a little bit worried that if uh, we were climbing up a mountain and there was some sort of avalanche, that trying to decide whether to save me or save a nest full of bird eggs, you might go with the nest full of bird eggs. It's just a numbers game. There's more birds there, right? But the other reason that you might arguably view yourself as heroic for choosing to save the thousand frozen embryos in this situation as presented is because those aren't just, uh, in your mind, fully functioning human beings with equal rights to everybody, especially some future mother whom, within whom they might be implanted to see if some of them are born. But they're actually in many ways uh, captives and captives with almost no hope of being set free with almost no hope of due process because they're stuck in sort of a, again, frozen embryonic state. Um, they're essentially against any will they may have as embryos, which I realize is a, is in and of itself a thought experiment to consider that idea. But beyond any will they may have as embryos, they are essentially jailed. They're entombed for want of a better word, uh, with, again, no due process ever getting them out of there. And in many cases, the uh, couple who are responsible for creating that embryo may have really, really good, sincere emotional reasons for never wanting those embryos to be implanted into the womb of, an, of a potentially expected mother. And even if an in vitro procedure were performed and you know, a half dozen of them were implanted into the womb. Um, the odds are very, very high that most of them are, are going to die, that they, their equal right to life has been consigned to essentially being farmed out as 
a numbers game that maybe one of them will actually be born and become a baby that we can then ignore in a situation like this because a thousand embryos or 999 more embryos than one child and the child may have to be sacrificed to save those embryos, even though those embryos may, even once removed from the building, remain in the custody of the fertility clinic or the people who, again, as a couple, created those embryos, they may actually remain in their permanent imprisoned state forever, never to be implanted and um, never to be in any way brought to a comfortable end to whatever your definition of life may be. In other words, there is a level where the belief in a hardcore perspective from the pro-life movement about life beginning at conception and truly taking that to its logical end puts you in sort of a weird spot where you're kind of comfortable with a certain form of slavery, a certain form of human trafficking, if you will, where until these, you know, fully human things, these people, quote unquote, are needed by two other people, then they will remain sort of permanently in prison. So somebody who weighs the two options and says, you know what, I'm going to have to let this this child or this you know tweenager die because I've got to save the frozen embryos. Again, they might tell themselves that, well, not only am I saving more quote-unquote people in one grand heroic gesture, but the people that I'm saving have been wrongfully imprisoned for, you know, potentially years, potentially decades, potentially forever. And yet, I've yet to meet anybody uh, who consider themselves pro-life, who thinks that life begins at conception, who would really struggle with these ideas that, that in this particular fire, those embryos are going to perish, who would acknowledge the fact that there's something fundamentally morally wrong with what led them to be cryogenically frozen and stored in this manner in the first place. But... That's not really the question today. That's again, slightly more of a confrontational, inappropriate conversations piece of consideration. But for me, as I think it through, I, I cannot imagine myself leaving somebody with agency. Somebody who is a, a person who's been born, who is functioning, who either is still a minor in the custody of parents who would have a real issue with me if they felt like I had made the choice and decided that their child simply had to die today because there were frozen embryos that needed to be saved. You know, for example, or my child where I was making this decision and I decided, you know, I'm going to look my wife in the eye and say, yes, I had to let our child die because, well, I had a thousand other, quote, people, unquote, to save. I don't know that that wouldn't be the end of my marriage. It might very well be the end of my life. Which means that I'm, I know for a fact I'm married to somebody who feels strongly enough about saving the child, whether our child or not, that it could be a deal breaker to make the decision in any other way. But I guess when I look at it, I'm wondering, well, why wouldn't it be a deal breaker? And I'm not here to speak from a, you know, inappropriate conversations, political perspective, siding with uh, Tomlinson in this case that, you know, yeah, you can't really find somebody honest enough. To even answer this question, if they've got that sort of, you know, hard, again, hardcore pro-life perspective. But remember the Bible verse that I shared today, which basically says, hey, even if you accidentally hit a pregnant woman and hit her so hard that it causes her to miscarry, and that miscarriage inevitably back in those days is going to lead to the death of the child, that there is no life for life punishment 
There's not even a limb for limb or a tooth for tooth punishment there. It's figure out what you got to pay the husband of that woman's baby to make the problem go away. And I've heard arguments, justifications for subsequent translations of this, uh, the NIV translation, for example, people who've defended that by saying that, well, maybe the verse just means instead of miscarry, maybe it means that she's not carrying the baby in her womb anymore, but it, it magically came out and survived because my Bible would never ignore the death of a child because an unborn child is a human life. Uh, it is, um, you know, uh, fully human from the point of conception. It doesn't appear to be what the original text had to say. In fact, again, the predominant view of people for whom the books were written, the Jewish point of view, is that that first breath, that initial breath of a child outside the womb, that is the breath of life. That's a very different idea than saying that in a, an embryonic state, in a, you know, in an amniotic sac, a fluid breathing entity is a human with the breath of life. Inside it. It's just a very, it's a very different idea. Now, in an inappropriate conversations perspective, I would explore other concepts. Bodily autonomy, for example, or the idea that somebody has a right to defend themselves, and therefore, where the life of the mother is in any way in peril, either due to uh, medical issues with the pregnancy itself, or due to the possibility that an outraged parent or outraged spouse may react violently and harm the woman in, in the light of the pregnancy, that that there are, you could certainly understand or excuse why a woman might take deadly force into her own hands to protect her own life. I'm not going to go there. Here, the life choice I'm interested in is that if we are serious about equivocating as quote unquote fully human, two very different ideas, we might come up with a very different answer to this question. We might say that if there was no vat of embryos here involved at all, that I had the opportunity to save a very young teenager or a child even, cowering in the corner of a room of a burning building. But I also had the ability to clear the debris out of a different part of the building and rescue a dozen people. Well, do you rescue the dozen? Do you rescue the child? I mean, these questions are inherently difficult when you're dealing with two, uh, again, people with agency. But when you're dealing with imprisoned frozen embryos, embryos that may never become a child, may never get implanted into a uterus and have that sort of 50-50 at best chance of becoming a child, or even having um, the ownership of that particular property belonging to a couple who's decided that those particular embryos will never be implanted and never become a child. That's a different situation altogether. And the fact that it makes us uncomfortable, if it does, does not relieve us of the obligation of conducting the thought experiment. The idea behind thought experiments, the idea behind parables, even the short and simple ones like considering the lilies of the field or you know, a pearl of great price, even the very short quick ones are asking us to say, stop thinking about yourself for a moment. Put yourself in the shoes of whatever situation is being presented to you because when it's over, you can always flee back to the comfort of yourself and hopefully take with you whatever you've learned. Because there's something in an honest response to a question like this, which reveals a lot about our morality. That someone may make what I would consider a political decision to construct some argument for why saving thousands of frozen embryos is definitely the way to go. But I also think that that, that thought, that said, 
put in this Sophie's Choice situation, I'm definitely going to let the frightened child cowering in the corner die. I might even punch or kick or otherwise shoo that kid away because I only have enough strength and energy and air in my lungs to save the vat, to save the frozen embryos. It tells us things about ourselves that I think Tomlinson is right to suggest that some people would say or do anything to avoid answering the question because they don't want to live with the mental consequences of it as it lingers. I don't think thought experiments are easy. I don't go into this lightly. I don't do it often for a reason. Because I think that there is a a lot to wrestle with long after the actual answer has been considered or given or avoided. I'm just thinking that for this one, I don't find it as hard as other people do. And maybe it's because I've answered more difficult and challenging thought experiments over the years. Or maybe it's because I don't come in with a firmly entrenched political position. It's worth considering. If and as you are led, please join me in prayer. Merciful God, many of us believe that it is surely your grace that keeps us from having to face decisions like this on an everyday basis. But Lord, give us the moral character, the strength, the ethical integrity to consider honestly questions like this from time to time so we would have insight into what we might do if faced with, you know, particular, unwelcome, unfortunate, calamitous choices. I do not wish this uh, so-called devil's bargain on anyone. It is not something that I take lightly and not something that I ask anyone to consider lightly. But Lord, you challenged us in your walk on this earth. Very few examples of you speaking to a large crowd didn't leave the crowd befuddled and wondering, what am I supposed to do with that? So continue to show your mercy upon us as we know that we are going to fail in one manner or another um, when faced with situations like this, either hypothetically or in reality. In some ways, God, it helps me remember that it is your mercy at the end of the day that I'm relying upon, no matter which way I face the choices that I confront. In your holy name I pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. Don't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions.
Kevin McLeod. Next on Walk the Earth, whether Jesus should have washed the feet of Judas. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.